Man, welcome to Safe Haven. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, so grateful to have you. Um, we are going to continue on this morning in our journey through the book of Exodus. And so just quick recap. Um, so the whole book of Exodus, really the whole book of the Bible is about God trying uh, making a people for himself. It's a continual theme that we see through the scriptures. And last week we got to um, Exodus chapter 32. Um, and we saw Moses was up on the mountain with God and he heard some celebration that was happening back down um, at the camp with the people of Israel. Um, but it wasn't over the worship of the one true God, right? Um, they had crafted this busted golden calf and they were worshiping that. And so before Moses even made it down from the mountain, the Israelites had already broken the first two commandments, right? They had already put a God... Um, they, they, uh, no other God before me. They broke that one and then they had made a graven image um, for themselves. So grieved by their lack of devotion for God, um, he wants just to destroy them there on the spot. <laughs> He's like, I'm done with these people. I'm, I'm over this. Um, and just start all over with Moses. But by his grace, he does not. Um, and so Moses comes down from the mountain. He's furious. He breaks the tablets. He sees Aaron. He's like, you know, messed up Aaron. He is over it. He's <laughs> shame on you that you know that. Shame on me that I said that. Um, anyway, so <clears throat> in Exodus 32, we see the Israelites, by their impatience and trust in themselves, have gotten themselves into a divine cluster, right? And they've already suffered some of the consequences, right? They made a, they made a powdered, uh, Moses made the uh, idol down, ground it down to a powder, made them drink the, the idol Ovaltine. Um, that was bad. Um, God slayed the unrepentant um, people. And so it was just a cluster. But perhaps I think today we see the, the warning or the, um, the threat of even a greater consequence which is the pulling away of God's presence. And so in our text today, we're going to see that God tells His people and tells us that His presence demands His Lordship. And so the first thing, I want to just kind of walk through the text this morning. The text kind of teaches itself. And so I just want to pull out a few observations that we can kind of walk away with. And so we're just going to do that. So the first, I think we can see, the first observation about God's presence is this. A life lived in sinful self-centeredness is a life lived without God. Look with me in verses 1 through 6. And the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezrites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I will consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people." And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what 
what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And so the first three verses looking at this text, it sounds very gracious. Um, God would, would make good on His promises to them that He's going to grant them blessing after blessing. I hope you see that in the text. Moses would lead them into the land that God had covenanted with them. God would crush their enemies like He promised and He would clear the land of any danger that was set before them and the Israelites could take possession of this abundant land. Everything He promised to them But one thing, he wouldn't go with them. That was it. I'll give you everything, but I'm not going to go with you. He is giving them over to their own lordship, giving them exactly what they want. And his decision not to go with them was filled with mercy. Consuming the people because of their their stubbornness is not what he wants. But he's perfectly holy. He's, he's judging justly. God's deci- God decides on whom he will have compassion. This isn't a flippant anger. Don't look at this text and say God's off the rails. Okay, He's, he's off the rails. He's, ang- he's, he's just flippantly mad at them. God responds to sin with perfect righteousness. You need to know that. And So are you able to see the echoes of the fall at Eden? God desiring to live with His people, yet He's unable to because they refuse His wisdom. You need to feel the weight of this text, okay? The God who has brought them out of Egyptian captivity, the one who has sent plagues to rescue them from the Egyptians, the one who has shielded them and guided them by the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, the one who parted the Red Sea that they could walk through it, the one who sent down bread from heaven to sustain them in their sojourning, the one who who gave Moses the blueprints to build a sanctuary so that he could dwell in their midst with them, drawing his people closer and closer to him and to his presence, providing for their needs, teaching them His law. He was their God and they were His people. But now this God says that they're on their own. Do you feel the weight of what's going on here? Don't miss that in verse 1. This, all through Exodus, we've seen God say, you're my people, you're my people, I'm going to do this with my people. Do you notice the language shift? No longer is it my people, it's the people. And so, sin again has brought separation and fracture to the relationship. But the worst part of it all was, I'm not going to go up among you. This is the same language that God used back in chapter 25. That Go, Moses, and take these, these blueprints, and I'm going to get you to build this tabernacle so that I can be with you. No longer would He tabernacle with the people. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. And the irony here is super rich because with the golden calf that they impatiently took lordship into their own hands, used their riches to bring God into their midst on their terms, now because of their idolatry, He wouldn't come at all. This is a big deal. This is what idols do though. They promise us joy and they promise us fulfillment and they draw us further and further away from the very source of joy and fulfillment. They do it every time. Every single time. And the Israelites are now facing a life without God. Without their one true God. The one who has led them and brought them to this point. And there will be no divine presence anymore in their camp. So, my question for you this morning is how would you respond to the news that God wasn't going to go with you? Think about what's going on in this text. 
God was still offering them the blessings of the covenant. You're still going to get the land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to take out your enemies. I'm going to take you there. It's going to be okay. But I'm not going to go with you. God was still offering to bless them without having the relationship with them. Isn't this the DNA of cultural Christianity? Isn't this the very DNA of what cultural Christianity is? Most people want God to help them come, uh, overcome the hardships in their life. They, they, want them to, they want to reach the promised land, but they're not interested in having a personal relationship with the one true God, right? With the living God, the one where He rules over every facet of our lives and every facet of our being. In cultural Christianity, we love for God to bless us. We love for God to give us stuff, to forgive us, to rescue us from hell, right? To provide protection for us and our families, to give us this job, to give us that spouse, to get us into this school. But do we hunger for God Himself? Or do we want the polished life without the pursuit of holiness? That's what we see with the Israelites. Do we hunger for the riches of God without the, without the grace giver? This is something that we need to ask ourselves. This, this, this mentality is prevalent everywhere in our culture, right? At our core, could it be said that we want just the presence and gift, gifts of God with us without the presence of God with us? We need to ask ourselves these things. And in the text, we see that the Israelites didn't even have a paradigm for this. This was ludicrous for them. They refused to settle for any blessing apart from God's presence. Look at verse 4. It says, it was a disastrous word. They mourned. No one put on ornaments. Their ornaments. Their anguish and their pain is displayed in their actions and in their words. So they mourn, they cry out because they're broken over their sin. They didn't want to see God's presence leave them. This, it's this contrition that we see. And many scholars link this removing of this jewelry to repentance. They look at Genesis chapter 35 with Jacob when he, makes this, when he renews the covenant at Bethel. And he tells his family to remove their jewelry and he buries their jewelry in the ground with all of their idols. The removing of this jewelry was a picture of their repentant hearts and their recommitment to the Lord. But here's what I want you to see in this really big deal in this text right here. We see here our use of resources can either lead us into the presence of God or away from the presence of God. Do you see that in the text? We see the power of money through Israel's treasures. In Exodus 32, they took off their gold earrings, remember? What, remember how the idol, idol happened? They took off their earrings, they took off their gold, and they, give it, they gave it to Aaron. And then Aaron made this bogus thing like, oh, they just took it off and I threw it in this fire and out came this calf. You know, like, what in the world? So they used their riches to draw them away from God in chapter 32. In Exodus 33, they took off their jewelry as a sign of submission to the worship of the one God, the one true God alone, putting off their idols. And we're going to see in Exodus 35 that they're going to use their gold to build the temple or the tabernacle, I'm sorry, to usher in God's presence amongst them. So the Israelites were making progress. Instead of using their wealth to feed their idolatry, they were learning to give it up for the sake of God's glory. And honestly, this is a discipline that we've been learning to grow in um, here at Safe Haven. At the very beginning of the year, we sought out to grow in the discipline of giving. And I think you need to hear, as a church, by God's grace, He's done just that in your hearts and in your lives. Praise God for that. It's incredible. 
But we need to remember, church, that money, our money and our resources is always a lordship issue. It's always a lordship issue. You can see it time and time again throughout the text. And we need to ask ourselves, what what we do with our money and how we view our money and our resources is one of the best indicators of our spiritual condition. Are we spending most of it on ourselves or are we growing in the grace of generosity? By looking at our giving and our spending patterns, we, we see who sits on the throne of our hearts. It's just true. You might be, that guy sounds like a legalist. I guess Jesus was a legalist. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. Where does your treasure lie? And I think we need to ask, do we love God more than we love His blessings? And there's many blessings that come from knowing God, right? We just look at the... Think of the spiritual blessings that come from knowing God. We have the spiritual blessings of repentance, the forgiveness of sin, justification, sanctification, glorification, the doctrine of adoption, perseverance of the saints. Just to name a few. Those are just spiritual blessings. Not to even mention the myriad of physical blessings that we have in our lives. I mean, just think about how the ways that the Lord has blessed you and blessed me. The Scripture is saturated with blessings from God, but the greatest blessing is God Himself. Period. Period. To be led, to be formed, and to be transformed by Him, to be radically dependent on Him in prayer, to drink deeply from Him, from the well of meditation, where we we come to know Him, to be faithfully present and to enjoy Him. This is the chief end of man. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To drink deeply from His presence. And so... That's the greatest blessing, period. And if we know God in a personal way through the saving work of Jesus the Son, then blessings will follow. But the the blessing is God Himself. J.I. Packer, my Anglican brother, says it this way in his knowing God. It's so good. He said, what are we made for to know God? What aim should we set ourselves in life to know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. It's all about Him. And as the old hymn goes, everything else is just sinking sand. And so, I think it would do us well in these first six verses to ask ourselves, Is God useful to us or is He beautiful to us? When God is useful to us, we'll come to Him on our terms and meet with Him on our terms. When God is beautiful to us, we will sacrifice everything that we have and everything that we can give just for a moment to be in His presence. So, observation number two. God doesn't walk out on his friends. Look, I tried so hard this week to get these, like, where they would line up, the Baptist in me, I guess. But it just didn't work out this week. So, that's just me being uh, honest with you. So, anyway. So, verses 7 through 11. Observation number two. God doesn't walk out on his friends. 
Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out into the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Okay, so God has told Israel he's not going to go with them into the promised land. It was too dangerous, not for God, but for them because of their sin. His holiness would consume them in their sinfulness. However, they've repented of their sin in some form or fashion by taking off these, these ornaments, this jewelry, uh, because of their idolatry like God had told them to do. Now what does God do? What's He going to do? Is He going to go with them? Is He not going to go with them? Well, the Bible really doesn't solve that tension for us just yet. Um, It kind of holds the tension just like a good story does. Instead, we get this story of Moses and the tent of meeting. The story begins, though, to resolve the problem for us by showing that there was at least one man who could enter into God's presence on behalf of the people. And so I want you to note, because this can kind of get confusing if you've been studying along in Exodus, this tent of meeting was not the tabernacle. Okay, so if you're like, what? how does this work? I thought that hadn't been built yet. You're right, it hasn't been built yet. So this tent of meeting is not the tabernacle. And it's kind of confusing because the inner structure, like Troy talked about when he talked through the dimensions of the tabernacle in chapter 27, it, the inner part of the tabernacle is also called the tent of meeting. Both places, both tents were places to meet with God, but there's one signif- great significance between the two tents, and it's their proximity to the camp. Okay, so in the tabernacle, which hadn't been built yet, that's coming in Exodus 35, will be at the center of the camp. But this tent of meeting that we read about in Exodus 33 is far outside the camp is what the text says. And it's because of the the Israelites were still under the divine judgment for their sin. They were separated by their sin, but God had not fully abandoned them yet. The tent of meeting was a temporary tabernacle that served for Moses as a place where he could meet with the Lord. So Moses would go into this tent of meeting to meet with God, and Israel stood off in the distance and would watch and worship as their mediator went in. They were looking to their mediator as, they met with, as he met with God. Hang on to that. So when Moses went in, a pillar, of, a pillar of cloud would descend from heaven and would rest on this tent and cover its entrance. And this is what theologians like to call a theopony, which is a visible manifestation of the presence of God. You see these all throughout Scripture. But this glory cloud showed that Moses, which is what's extraordinary about this text, was meeting with God. And what's more extraordinary is that in this tent, Moses spoke with God, okay? So he's he's spoken with God at the burning bush and again on the mountain, but now in God's grace, he has descended down to Moses to communicate with him, okay? And the text says that Moses spoke with him face to face 
like a friend to a friend. Okay, so we need to, we need to note something there too. So there, there seems to be a discrepancy in the text. If you go and read on down in verse 20, it says, well, he spoke to Moses face to face, but it says God told Moses later that you can't see me and live. So what's going on here? Like, so this is a figure of speech showing that Moses enjoyed the direct communication with him. He had immediate access to God. Church, do you hear the echoes of Eden? We just walked through the book of Genesis. That no man has had this level of intimacy and fellowship since our first parents were banished from the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Nobody has. Moses and God were friends, and God doesn't walk out on his friends. He's told Moses everything he needed to know about what he's planning to do with Israel. He spoke to Moses like a friend and points to the fact, this points to the fact that there's still hope for Israel. He hasn't left them yet. Okay? And so... Even though he told Israel that he wouldn't go up to the land and tabernacle with them, he was still at least talking to their mediator. He's still talking to their mediator on their behalf. And believer, here's what I want you to see in this text, or this section of this text. As we look in this text at what Israel had to do in this moment to meet with God, I hope that you're met with the astonishing reality and the amazing privilege that we have today as believers in 2022. Where do we go to meet with God? We don't have to go a distance away. We don't have to go outside the camp. We don't have to talk to a prophet or a priest. We don't have to do any of that. Through the person and work of King Jesus, you have immediate access to God through the presence of His Spirit who dwells within you. That should stir your affections greatly. And so where is this tent of meeting for us? It's inside of us because God has come to tabernacle in us, to make His home in us through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit to teach us, to commune with us, to remind us of who we are, to help us to war against sin. And this is what happens to regenerated believers. God comes and He he moves into our lives and completely transforms us, not from the outside, but from the inside. Okay, and so he he grants us constant communion with him. And when you read the scripture, God speaks to us like a friend to a friend. His spirit applies the word to our hearts and to our minds. Romans chapter 12, the promises of God in scripture are promises made to us in Christ. The warnings he makes in scripture are made to us. The commandments he gives in scripture are made to us. He speaks to us through his word and we speak back through prayer. We share our struggles. We share our frustrations. We share our celebrations. We ask for divine help. And like a friend to a friend, God meets with us. This is grace. This is grace. And I hope you see it. Not only is God with us and within us, but he also promises to never leave us or forsake us. Jesus in the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, he says, Go therefore and uh, baptize, uh, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Man, Jesus, that sounds like a really lofty task for us. But what else does he say? And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with you. He promises to go with us, not to leave us. Jesus does not leave our camp. And I say all of this to say because I believe this plagues our minds as Christians. 
I have conversations with people regularly who deal with these, these type questions. When I fall into sin, is God still with me? Does, does He still love me? Will He even use me? Am I so stiff-necked that He's going to abandon me too? Maybe you've found yourself there. God doesn't walk out on His friends, church. Jesus, in John chapter 15. No greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Safe haven. Jesus has invested way too much into this friendship to abandon us. He's invested way too much, man. He goes on to say in the same passage, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Don't miss this last part. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The Father calls you friend as well. Church, we have the same grace and privilege that Moses had in this moment in Exodus 33 to be called a friend of God. And if anything, the privilege that we have is even deeper rooted because we know what Christ had to go through to secure that friendship for us. He had to be forsaken so that we could be friends. He experienced divine separation so that we could be brought into the the circle. And also, He grants us His Spirit to dwell in us. It's all grace. And this is the continual theme of redemptive history. God always moving closer into intimacy with His people, seeking to dumpster dive into the wreckage of our life so that we can be reconciled to a friendship with Him. That's the good news of the Gospel. And that's what the book of Exodus is all about. God trying to find a way to dwell with His people. And in this passage, He can't do it, but He hasn't given up yet either. We know when we read ahead that the tabernacle is going to come and and the book's going to close with Him dwelling with His people in all His glory. But you know what? The Israelites are going to fall into idolatry again and again and again and again because they need new hearts. They need new hearts. And that's going to come through a true and better mediator, which leads us to observation number three. Look at me in verse 12. Observation number three is this. God's presence is our joy. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go up with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go up with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious gracious and show mercy to whom I will show show mercy. 
But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back and by my face, but my face shall not be seen. So God's presence is our joy. In this final section, we're taken into that conversation that happens in the tent of meeting between Israel's mediator and their God that they want the presence of. And so this conversation is like a friend to a friend. So God's presence as his source of joy individually. Look at uh, verses 12 and 13. So Moses understood that his calling to lead Israel to the promised land, and he simultaneously knew that he couldn't do that calling on his own, right? It's God who's the one that's defeated the Egyptians. It's God who's the one who sent the plagues. It's God who's parted the sea. It's God who's directed them. It's God who's given them water from a rock. It's God who's dropped bread from the sky. It's all God, and He knows His dependence upon it. And in verse 12, he says, See, you say to bring me up to this people, yet you haven't told me who's going to go with me. See, there was some doubt as, if, as to if the Lord was going to join him on the trip, but Moses needed to know for sure that he was going to go with him. For him to be able to lead the people effectively, he needed to know the mind of God. Show me your ways, is what he says. As we seek to do what God has called us to do, church, we definitely need to take note from Brother Moses in this passage. When we, when we seek to honor our parents, when we seek to serve in our singleness, when we seek to learn how to live with a spouse, to raise kids, for crying out loud, um, working a job, serving the church, we need to plead and to beg the Lord that He would go with us every single step of the way. Because if He doesn't, it is going to be a divine cluster in more ways than one. Everything apart from God's presence in our day-to-day rhythms is, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, vanity of vanities. It's a waste. It's a waste. And this is the bedrock of fruitful prayer, to seek Him and His presence. Not simply what He can do for us, but for who He is. Jesus in John chapter 15, He reminds us, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Jack squat. Apart from him, you can do nothing. And so Moses knew this God and his great need for him, but also, catch the scripture, God also knew Moses. Don't miss that language. I know your name, and have, you have found favor in my sight. Look, this is much more than God knowing his name was Moses, okay? Like, it's much more than that. God knew Moses in a loving, saving, and electing way. This is how God knows His kids. Psalm 139, He knit us together in our mother's wombs. Ephesians chapter 1, we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. We were predestined for adoption as sons. And if you are friends with God through faith in the person and work of Christ, then you are known by God in the same way as well. That's a huge grace, church. And so Moses then turns and he uses his position then to advocate for the people. So God's presence was his source of joy individually, but God's uh, presence is also our source of joy collectively. Verses 13 through 16. Notice that Moses reminds God of his covenant promise to Israel. Consider too that this nation is your people, God. 
However, this text seems to suggest that God completely ignores Moses' request. Notice what he says in verse 14. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This rest here is singular and not plural. He's telling Moses, I'll go with you. I'll grant you rest. But as far as these idolaters, yeah, no, I'm not going with those guys. And God's reply showed that he would grant relief to Moses in the burden of leading the people spiritually, but he hadn't agreed yet to go among them um, with the rest of the Israelites. Verse 15, though, shows that Moses didn't want anything about that. He didn't want anything to do with that. Even though God had promised to go with him, he had not yet promised to go with Israel. To Moses, the rest of the people needed God just as much as he did. Notice Moses' dependency upon the Lord in verse 15. Look at, look at that language in verse 15. If your presence will not go with me, don't even take me to the don't even take me there. In other words, if the covenant giver is not going to come with me, I don't want anything to do with the covenant blessings. That's stout language, church. What would our lives look like if we adopted Moses' mantra? If you don't go, we won't go. Even if you could have all your heart's desires. That's what this text is talking about. You can have the land. You can have the blessings. I'll do it all for you. But I'm not going to go. You know what? If you could have all your heart's desires apart from God's presence, you know what that is? It's hell. That's what it is. We need His presence. His presence is our utter good. This wasn't Moses trying to be rebellious in this moment. He understood what the whole exodus was about. He knew that it was part of God's plan for saving the world. This was God's plan all along. He knew the only way Israel would be able to fulfill its part of the covenant plan was having God at the center of everything they said and did. Everything. Which is why he replies to the question like he does in verse 16. If you don't go with us, we're not distinguished. That's what, your presence is what makes us distinguished from everybody else. That is what distinguished the Israelites from all the other nations. What was it? It wasn't their, it wasn't their land. They didn't have the land yet. It wasn't their righteousness. We saw how busted that was in Exodus 32. It wasn't their treasures. All the other nations had way more than they did. It was God's presence in their midst. And we see this today with people who rely on what they bring to the table versus those who are dependent on God and His grace and everything that He does for us to live solely for His glory in all things. God is with them and He is everything to them. And the distinction between those who know God and those who don't is faith in Christ. That's the dividing line. Christ in all and Christ is all. And so... We've seen that His presence is the source of joy individually. We see that God's presence is our sole source of joy collectively. And perhaps the most important thing that we can see in this entire text today is God's presence is attained through a mediator. Verses 16 through 23. As Moses tried to persuade God to stay with Israel, he did something pretty interesting. I don't know if you picked up on that in verse 16. He kept referring to himself. Look at that. I have found favor in your sight, God. I and your people. We are distinct. I'm distinct. I and your people. 
And it may seem prideful at like face value. It might seem like one of those like Numbers 12, number 12 moments. I don't know if you read through the book of Numbers, but it's in Numbers 12 you go and find it's like, Moses was the most humble man who ever walked the place, this uh, planet Earth. Signed, Moses. You know, like, is that what's going on in this text? Like, I'm distinct. I, I'm, I'm the one. That's not what he's getting at. Moses understood, though, what it meant for him to be a mediator for the people. He understood what that meant to be a mediator of the covenant. He knew that Israel's fate was tied to his ministry and somehow his own relationship to God was intimately linked to their salvation. So why did God decide to stay with the Israelites? Partly because of the promises He made to them in the covenant. Partly because they took off the ornaments, remember at the beginning of the passage, and repentance and, and contrition over their sin. But look at what God says as to why He will save the Israelites. Look in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, me going with them up into the land, me being their God and they my people, I will do. Why? For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Don't miss that. That's the key to this whole text. Moses understood he was their mediator, and the the Israelites were accepted and brought in. Why? Because God was pleased with their mediator. The Israelites were saved by the merits of their mediator. God knew Moses. The grace and love that God in His grace showed to Moses was also extended to them. Why? To show us the true basis of our salvation. We can't be saved by what we've done, church. There's no amount of ornaments or gold or earrings that you can take off to walk into the presence of God. You can't do it. It's not possible. You cannot earn or merit your own salvation. So how can we be saved? Through God taking pleasure in our mediator. Our salvation rests on the delight that God takes in the person and work of His Son Jesus. And verse 17 is just an early foretaste of what we see in our true and better mediator, Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, where Jesus is... He's about to start His public ministry. He's about to touch lepers. He's about to to cast out demons. He's about to heal people. He's about to flip the whole world upside down as to what true biblical righteousness looks like. And before He starts on His public ministry, He enters into the waters of the Jordan to be baptized. And the sky opens up and and the Spirit descends and lays on Him. And a voice from heaven cries out, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well Pleased. It's just an echo of that. God is showing that his son, God was showing that his son was an acceptable mediator for our salvation, but he didn't just say it, he showed it. After Jesus lived the perfect life, died the substitutionary death, God showed his acceptance of his mediatorship, if that's even a word, by raising him up out of the dead and, and sending him up into heaven to rule and reign as king. He is the true and effective mediator for us. The resurrection is the approval that God was pleased with a perfect sinless life and the atoning sacrificial death Jesus offered up for us. And honestly, at times we think if God, could God truly be pleased with us? We feel the weight of our sin. We know we're stiff necked. I know I, I know I know how stiff necked I am. 
We're met with our failure. We, we fail to measure up to our own standards, much less God's perfect standard. And the doubt rises, could God ever love me? Could He ever be pleased with me? Especially in, this, especially in the nastiness of this sin or that sin. And here's your answer. No, He can't. Not in your own efforts. He sure can't. But He is pleased with Jesus. And therefore, if anyone who trusts in Christ, God is pleased with you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he who, he who knew no sin became sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the only basis of which God is pleased with any of us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the basis. Christ intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for us, Romans chapter 8. You want God to be pleased with you? You need to have Christ as your mediator. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. He lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews chapter 7. He ushers in a new and better covenant, Jeremiah 31, where the law is written on our hearts and we're given forgiveness of sin through the person and work of Christ, a covenant that He signs through His cross in His own blood. Jesus does for us what Moses did for Israel only more perfectly. He prays for our salvation on the basis of his own perfect standing before God. And he asks God to accept accept us, not because we're acceptable, but because he is. C.S. Lewis says it this way, and I'll end it with this. Man, you can come on back up here. C.S. Lewis says, He loves us not because we are lovable, but because... He is love. So church, hope. what you've seen this morning in this text is that we are in dire need of God's presence. We need His presence in everything that we do. Everything, not just here on earth, but we need, for eternal, we need His eternal presence. And the reality is that Christ stepped into our brokenness to come and mediate for us so that we could be brought back into His presence. And so this text ends, which I'm not going to get into detail, with Moses begging for the Lord to just give him a glimpse of His glory. Lord, just let me see a glimpse of Your glory. Just, I want to see just a radiant, the, just a shimmer of the radiance of Your glory. It's like, Moses, you can't do it. You'll die. You can't handle my glory. Believer. Christ, as Hebrews tells us in chapter 1, is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His very nature. And one day, we will be met face to face with Him. The fullness of deity in Him bodily dwells, Colossians chapter 2. And in all of His glory, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more. And sin will be no more. And the enemy will be no more. And He will be our God. And we will be His people forever and ever and ever. But until that time, He grants us His Spirit to offer us, to offer us little glimmers of His glory in our day-to-day rhythms. So that, let that drive you to worship, man. An unbeliever. There is no way into God's presence other than Christ mediating on your behalf through His work, His sinless life, His sacrificial death, 
his glorious resurrection and his ruling and reigning ascension on your behalf. Repent. Today could be the day of salvation. Take off your ornaments and turn to God by his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. (laughs) It's a heavy text. Um, Your presence demands your lordship. And everything within us wants to war against it. But Lord, thank you for stepping into our brokenness so that we could be brought back, so that we could take our hearts of stone and have it replaced with a heart of flesh and be given your spirit to cause us to walk in your statutes and walk in your rules and to delight in who you are and to live a life of selflessness and to point others to you. What a grace. Holy Spirit, would you move in our midst? Would you meet with us? Would you draw those who don't know you to repentance and faith in the personal work of Jesus? We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.